0: I really appreciated those last two songs that Bob read. Not read, led. You got to click on this now. Just click right where the mouse is. We did it. Uh, those last two songs, Unto the O Lord, I Will Call Upon the Lord. Both of those are taken from the Psalms, of course. And they both have very explicit lyrics about enemies, Right? Uh, not, not allowing our, our enemies to overtake us. Of course, those come from David, who in his lifetime is dealing with a lot of enemies, physical enemies, who are running him down, chasing him in the wilderness, in battle. Really, really apt for a study of Esther as we come to Esther 7 and 8, the final showdown between Esther and Haman, because again, Esther is, is ultimately having the same sorts of thoughts as David. In a lot of those Psalms, our enemies are about to overtake us, Please don't let our enemies overtake us. And while, of course, God is not explicitly mentioned in the book of Esther, Esther falls in the same sort of tradition as those Psalms, where God's people are in danger from their enemies, and they need deliverance, and they need relief. And, of course, things are coming to a head in Esther chapter 7-8 and of God delivering his people from their enemies. A very similar idea to a lot of the Old Testament. It very much fits with the themes of the Old Testament. So, recap the last couple of nights here. Evening one, as Esther, of course, we talked about in Bible class this morning, Esther asks the people to feast for three days, and then I'll go talk to the king, and she goes and talks to the king and says, I'm going to have a feast, come to the feast with Haman. So evening one, they have this feast with Esther and Haman and, and the king. Night one, after the first feast, Haman is preparing the gallows. He's really upset. Ah, things are so horrible. But they're really not. We talked about that, right? He's, he's consumed by bitterness and resentment but prepares the gallows while the king has a sleepless night and is like, hey, let's bring the book of the great deeds and and he hears about Mordecai. And so the following day, Haman is commanded to honor Mordecai uh, and, and has this great parade, and he's on the king's horse and wearing the garments, and of course this rankles Mordecai great, or rankles Haman greatly. And Haman is warned by his wife and counselors, hey, things are not going very well for you. Uh, I'm not sure that you're going to be able to overcome Mordecai. And so we come to evening two, where Esther is having this second feast. And, and the salvation of the Jews in Esther really comes in two parts in this climax of the story. Number one, of course, is Esther's confrontation of Haman at the feast. Number two is Mordecai's counter decree. We're going to look at both of those tonight in Esther 7 and 8 as we read this story. So Esther 7, 1 and 2. We have this feast, of course, the second feast. Haman and the king went in to feast with Esther the queen. On the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Even to half my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Now, it's interesting. This is the third time the king has asked this. Of course, she goes to the king's court. That was the deal, right? If I go to the king and he doesn't like it that I came to him, then I'm going to die. She goes to the king's court, and the king makes this offer. What is your wish? She requests, Hey, come have a meal with me. Does it at the feast, does it at the feast, the same thing, what's your request? Come to a second feast with me. The king, I think, knows that there's something going on with Esther. The king knows this, right? She's not going to risk death just to have a feast with Haman and the, and the king. So I think the king understands, hey Esther, what is this thing that you want? You, you clearly want something. What is it? And, and of course, the king is clearly infatuated with Esther. That's the whole business about the first part of the book. Why the first part of the book matters is Esther has been brought into the kingdom for this exact moment when the king is like, I love you Esther so much. You're so great. Let me give you whatever you want. And now is the moment. She's delayed several times. She set all this up. Of course, we know it's going to work out. I don't know in the story. It's hard to tell why she's delaying exactly except that we know it works out right because of what happened in the previous night the whole point why this is the opportune moment is the king was just reminded of Mordecai's goodness and Haman was just put in this bad situation of building these gallows for Mordecai when of course things are going to turn on a dime in this section of the text And really, this section of the text, which is the climax of the story, brings all of the king's character traits back into play. All of the things we've seen about the king up until this point come back in this particular part of the story. Verses three and four. The queen queen answered, If I have found I actually want you to note before I read it, the way that she phrases this, very similar to the way that Haman, except subtly different, the way Haman approached the king back in chapter three about destroying the Jews. Esther, again, very particular about her words. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for me, uh, granted me for my wish and my people for my request. We have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for the affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Esther's plea centers the king as the beneficiary and the one who has authority, right? This is all centered on the king. It's humble, right? If I found favor in your sight, if I please the king, right? This is about you, O king. And establishing that this is just as much about the queen, right? I am your queen and my life is at danger too as the Jews. The king probably doesn't care about the Jews. He just doesn't. He probably doesn't care about the Jews. He cares about Esther though. He likes Esther a lot. And so she centers not just her people, but my life. Let my life be granted to me, along with my people, sure. But I know that you really just, you care about me. So she centers it about herself and then makes it about not just the destruction of the Jews, the injustice of it, but the king's wealth and power, right? It would be, if it was just slavery, I wouldn't even bring it up. That wouldn't be a loss to the king. But the king, you're going to lose a bunch of property essentially is what she's saying here. Subjects in your kingdom that bring in tax revenue, that contribute to the economy, right? If it was just slavery, that wouldn't change, but we're gonna be destroyed and you're gonna lose a lot of wealth, not to be compared with the loss of the king. And so Esther provides a way of saving face here. Of course, it's kinda the king's fault that the Jews are in trouble, because it was on his authority. He gave Haman the signet ring. He listened to Haman's proposal. Haman, of course, could only issue the first decree with uh, with, uh, Ahasuerus' blessing. So in some ways the king is at fault here, but remember, and, and this is one of the more interesting things about the Hebrew version of the book of Esther, the subtle distinction between the Hebrew word for enslaved and destroyed. And she again brings that out between the sold as slaves versus destroyed, killed, uh, destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Now Esther here is quoting verbatim the decree that went out, the original decree. Of course uh, Mordecai gave her a copy of the original decree. And so she has this language and she's, she's giving the king a way out. I know you were tricked. Now maybe the king was, maybe he wasn't. He's been shown to be pretty passive as a king in general. But he's also very vain, very arrogant. We've been, if we'd just been sold, which is a bod, but we've been order to be killed, which is also abad. There's a very slight difference in the Hebrew words here, or the words that are used. And so maybe she's offering the king out. Okay, you were tricked. I understand. Of course you, you didn't know what you were doing. You were tricked by Haman. She doesn't say Haman yet. You thought maybe it was being sold into slavery, but we're actually going to be destroyed and killed. And by the way, if we're destroyed and killed, you're the one who loses. You lose the tax revenue, the economy suffers, all these, pro- all these people in your kingdom This is not a good thing and by the way if this happens you'll lose me. I'm your queen. I'm the one that you love so much. And I'm gonna die too. So really playing to all of Ahasuerus's traits that we've seen up until now and of course one of these traits that we've seen over and over again is his malleability. The king is malleable. He does not have a strong will of his own. He just listens to what anybody else has to say. First the hands of his advisors with Vashti Now Haman, or then Haman, of course, influences him. And now Esther, doing the same thing that everybody in the story has done. wish. Verse 5. Hazarus is very angry, of course. And he's angry, I think, because he should know, right? She's a Jew. The Jews are going to be destroyed. Who was it, I wonder, that got my permission to destroy? Does he not remember? What happens? Is he just that dumb? Was he really not paying attention? He was like in a drunken stupor and Haman, I don't know. It's hard to say. Who is it who's done this? Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. By making it about a Ahasuerus, again, his queen, his property, Esther primes a Ahasuerus to outrage. And the providence of God is settled in nicely, right? Remember the previous evening and why it was ultimately to Esther's benefit. Why not ask when she enters the throne room? Why not ask on the first night? This is the reason because he has just been reminded of Mordecai and the Jews and Mordecai's loyal who is connected to Esther. Esther is also a Jew. All of this is fresh in the king's mind, priming him for this particular response. And so Esther's denunciation is strong. The foe, the enemy, this wicked Haman, this is the bad guy. And of course, Haman immediately realizes, uh uh-oh. And the king arose, verse 7, in his wrath and from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed. You kind of get the sense Haman is so, not Haman, Ahasuerus is so angry, he's like, I gotta go compose myself for a minute. He's so just full of rage. He doesn't want to lash out without thinking about it, maybe, or he's just too angry. He goes out in the garden to cool off or to maybe get control of himself, whatever it is. Haman stays to beg uh, beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. The king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And so, you know, she's over here on the couch and he's over here and the king walks out and Haman's like, oh no. And he goes over to beg to Esther, right? He's falling down at the couch. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. In the drama of Haman and Esther, the king is less a person than a force of nature to be dealt with. He is infinitely malleable. He goes along with whatever the last suggested plan was. He is a force of nature to be manipulated and coerced into doing their will. And Haman immediately recognizes, I can't reason with with the king. The king, he wants to kill me. I can't do anything with that. If I want to save myself, there's only one person in this room that I can reason with, that's Esther. Esther's the one who ultimately, and Haman recognizes this, Esther's the one who's pulling the strings at this particular moment. The king, he's apoplectic with rage. If Haman is going to make some sort of argument or pleading for his life, it's not going to be with the king. It's going to be with Esther. Esther, help me, save me, please. Even though, of course, the king is the one with the authority and the power. And once again, I will point out one of the main sort of sub-lessons of the book of Esther. People in power do not get there because they are competent. Not all the time. Being in charge doesn't make you a competent human being. It just means you have the most power and most authority. The king is not the most competent of people. And it was highly improbable. I I don't know, maybe highly improbable. We can perhaps see the hand of providence again in the timing of the king's return. Haman is just about to fall down at Esther. Please, please, I beg of you, save my life. Please uh, go on behalf of me to the king. And just as Haman is sort of fawning at Esther, begging for his life, The king comes back in, and he immediately, because he's primed, I think, to think in this way, misinterprets the situation. Haman, how dare you assault the queen? How dare, would you even do that in my own house? I'm right here. How dare you assault, which of course Haman's not doing. We understand that. Of course, it was highly improper and illegal to touch the king's property. That's why there's so many eunuchs in the story. Uh, we, we have so many eunuchs in these stories, and, and not just this story, but ancient literature, a lot of ancient liter- literature. The whole point of the eunuch was they were going to be the ones dealing with the queen, because they would not be tempted by her feminine wiles, because they're eunuchs, right? That was the whole business of the eunuchs, and so it's very, it's very illegal, very improper. Do not touch the queen. Do not touch the king's property. Here he is. He's doing it. Haman is... is at, of course, the exact wrong moment for the king to return. The king misinterprets this either intentionally or unintentionally and very much thinks Haman is assaulting his queen. How dare he? He's not allowed to do that. And so, one of these eunuchs, these eunuchs who are sort of the backdrop of the whole story, the eunuchs who suggest, well, well, this is what you should do about Vashti, the eunuchs who ultimately are the ones who prepare Esther, the eunuchs who keep Esther in touch with Mordecai, the eunuchs who, in this moment, provide another piece of advice to the king. Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, remember, he just learned about that last night, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. Now, interesting thing. There's not really a great word for this word gallows in the original text. is much more a stake. It's an instrument of impalement. This is not something to be hung on. This is something that someone was impaled on to be killed. Uh, but this thing is there, 50 cubits high. The king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai, then the wrath of the king abated. Now the confluence of events, of course we can see all of these different factors leading into what happens here. The king is primed and ready to turn on Haman and lo and behold, here's this helpful eunuch, might I suggest this is what Haman had prepared. Here you go, king. The king, of course, full of wrath, ready to turn on a dime and as he has demonstrated all throughout the story, infinitely open to suggestion. Here Har- Harbona is, who, might I suggest, might also be in the position that he is in precisely for this moment. Uh, here, king, here's what you need to do. Right here on a silver platter. And, of course, the king goes along with it. Mordecai Fry always said all these things. So, the irony of the situation, of course, is that Haman has prepared his own death. We talked about last week, that verse in Proverbs, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. This is the living embodiment of that verse, right? I'm going to build this gallows to hang Mordecai. Oh wait, the king just learned about Mordecai. The king wants me to honor Mordecai. Oh no, now I'm going to be impaled upon my own device that I built for Mordecai. Now, technically, if you're following along carefully, Haman is hanged for the wrong crime, right? the crime he is killed for is the physical assault of the queen, which we know he wasn't doing. But in the spirit of the law, he did indeed assault the queen, right? If you're thinking about assaulting the queen as leading to the queen's death, well, that's what he did. He implemented a decree wherein Esther would end up being killed. So in the technicality of the law, he is killed for the wrong reason. But in the spirit of the law, he did absolutely assault the queen unintentionally, we might add, because it's, I'm, I'm sure that if Haman had known that Esther was a Jew, things would have gone differently. And here again, we see how different elements of the story introduced so early at the beginning, different elements of the story are woven into the rest of the narrative because a large part of the story is that Haman does not know that Esther is a Jew. And why doesn't Haman know that Esther is a Jew? Because Mordecai said, don't tell anyone you're a Jew. And that dramatically influences how the rest of the story plays out. Now some commentators have faulted Esther for not mercifully coming to Haman's defense. Oh forgive Haman, he's such a, you should forgive him instead of killing him. This is not an act that would have proceeded from the Jewish mindset, right? The Old Testament mindset of the Jews where time and time again in the Old Testament God commands them to destroy their enemy. No mercy, even as they go into the land of Canaan. We're going to destroy them utterly. We got Pharaoh coming out of the, the land of Egypt, chasing after them. Parts of the Red Sea, they all go in, the waters come back. In the Jewish mindset, this is not a time for mercy. This is a time of war. And Haman is, in some ways the general of the opposite army. He is the commanding officer against Israel. So it would not have ever been in the Jewish mindset, hey let's be merciful to Haman here. He is a, he's a criminal of war. He's, he's an enemy combatant and this is the thing that he deserves in the eyes of the Israelites and I would say probably in the eyes of God. So Esther 8 1 through 4. Of course we know the problem is not over yet. You think oh yeah the day is saved, the enemy has been defeated, except not really. The crisis has not been averted yet. Verse 1 of chapter 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king. For Esther had told what he was to her. Now all has come out, right? Now everything is being revealed. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Got a lot of reversals going on in the story. Esther again spoke to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him, to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. Up until this point, Esther has been very emotionally composed. Of course, she took those three days of fasting to prepare, to get ready for battle. She's kept her composure well up to this point. I don't know if it's intentional at this point. She loses composure. She, She falls at his feet, weeping and pleading. Maybe tactical, maybe just overwhelmed with emotion. It's impossible to say in the story. But we see, of course, that the actual problem is not yet over. Haman has been defeated, but the real problem is not Haman. The problem is the decree, the, the proclamation that went out that on this particular day, you can destroy all the Jews without legal repercussion. And so Esther is again coming to the king. We need to, we need to resolve this. She said, if it pleased the king, if I'd found favor in his sight, this time four different ways of buttering him up. If, I, if it pleased the king, if I have found favor in his sight, if the thing seems right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his eyes, four things, she says. Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. How can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? And again, the king has clearly not th- thought things through. Here his he Passive nature strikes again. He puts Haman to death, but seemingly has no urgency about the actual thing that Haman did that was bad. In, again, the king's mind, Haman is put to death because he assaulted the queen. Esther realizes there, there's a bigger problem, king, and he, we keep having to put the king back on track here. The king is getting distracted. He's being passive. We got to put the king back on track, the actual problem, what needs to be done. And of course, she's employing the same techniques as before, centering it on the king, his desires, what he wants. And of course, centering Haman as the primary one at fault, even though we should note again, it's kind of the king's fault too forgiving Haman the signet ring and just trusting Haman's word and not being uh, active in his role as king. But again, emphasizing this is Haman's fault. It's not your fault, king, but let's resolve it. Let's make it right. The king said to Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman. They have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hand on the Jews. Now it seems that he's getting it. Oh yeah, it's not just about Esther. It's about the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict in the name of the king when sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Of course, it's not so simple as undoing what Haman did. Due to a feature of Persian law we've seen before, we've noted it in Daniel, the decree written in the name of the king, sealed with the signet ring, you can't take it back. That was the whole business with Daniel, why Daniel ends up in the lion's den, is this precise law. So what what does the king do? He does what he always does. You guys take care of it. (laughs) Here, have my signet ring. You guys take care of it. And it kind of makes the king's penchant for giving out a signet ring seem much riskier. Like, why are you giving that out all the time? If these decrees that are signed with the signet ring, they can't be revoked. Like, you got to be a little bit more responsible, King Ahasuerus. The king has no responsibility whatsoever. You guys do whatever you want. Here you go. Here's the sign of authority. You take care of it. And I don't know, presumably the king's going back to doing whatever the king is doing this whole time. Not much, it seems. And so the counter edict in Esther 8, this is where Mordecai comes into play. Esther is the primary one to confront the danger of the king. Again, we're treating the king as sort of a force of nature to be confronted and dealt with and overcome. Esther bears the brunt of that risk in the story. Mordecai is the role of sage, the wise counselor. And here Mordecai drafts. The counter edict. What are we gonna do to resolve this situation? And what follows is almost exactly parallel to Haman's letter in 3, 12 through 15. We're not gonna read it, but you can you can make the parallel if you just put them side by side, Esther 3, 12 through 15, and Esther 8, 9 through 14. We see the scribes are summoned, particular date. They write what the king's representative commands. Of course, in Esther 3 it's Haman, in Esther uh, eight it's Mordecai. They send it throughout the kingdom. The second part in Esther 8 emphasizes not only is it sent to all the kingdom, it's also sent to the Jews. Uh, It's written in all the native languages, both Esther 3 and Esther 8, except in Esther 8, we're also including explicitly the Jewish language. Written in the king's name, sealed with the signet ring, uh, giving orders to destroy, kill, and annihilate. This phrase that's come up several times, this is the key phrase even in the counter-edict. The edict gives the Jews... uh, authority to destroy, kill, and to annihilate anyone who tries to do that to them. So in the first one, very offensive letter, anyone who wants to can kill the Jews. The second letter, the Jews, now you have permission, you can kill anyone who tries to do that to you. The second letter does not give the Jews authority to kill, destroy, and annihilate anyone they want. It's very specifically phrased. The Jews are allowed to kill, destroy, and annihilate anyone who tries to kill, destroy, and annihilate them. You're allowed to defend yourselves, essentially. And then the Jews are also given permission, as in the first edict, Haman's edict. You can kill the Jews and take their stuff. Mordecai's edict includes the same thing. You can kill anyone who tries to kill you, and you can take their stuff. The idea of plundering the goods. And the couriers are sent quickly in the parallel. Mordecai's, not just sent quickly, but Mordecai's letter is sent with the royal mounts, the fastest horses in all the land, send it out to all the quadrants, all the regions of the kingdom. And there are, of course, two primary differences between the two decrees. Of course, the Jewish one, the one that's directed to the Jews, is designed to be defensive. And, of course, it is designed... uh, Actually, let's not get into that. We're going to... Look at part of that here. Esther 8, verse 14. The decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes, blue and white, with great golden crown and a a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa rejoiced and shouted. This is the second difference. First difference is it's very defensive in nature. Jews are allowed to defend themselves. The second difference between the two decrees is the response. In the first one, Esther 3, The city of Susa is thrown into confusion and chaos. Everybody's like, what is going on? This is crazy. The response to the second decree, shouting and rejoicing. Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor in every every province and every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached. There was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And the second part is very interesting here. Many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So now, not only are the Jews allowed to defend themselves, but they've reached such a high level of social status in all of that's transpired. People are like, oh, yeah, I'm a Jew. Definitely. Yeah, 100%. I'm definitely a Jew. No, you weren't. Yesterday, you weren't a Jew when there was going to be problems. But now, now the Jews are the favored ones. And oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's me. Uh, and maybe this is connected to the idea of the plundering, right? They're given permission to plunder. So maybe people are like, oh man, I can plunder too. But of course it says fear of the Jews. Oh, I'm with you. Don't, don't kill me. Don't destroy me. Don't annihilate me. I'm one of you guys, which, you know, they would have known. Nobody, people are not dumb. But we see the response in the city. And remember the tagline in Esther. This is the thesis of Esther. In chapter 9, verse 1, we're not going to read it, but we'll read it next week. And then the reverse occurred. That is the story of Esther in a nutshell. Then the reverse occurred. God's ultimate expression of providence is this reversal in the book of Esther. They went from living in fear, being totally afraid, and now people are afraid of them. They went from being subject to this decree to destroy, to kill, and annihilate. Now they are given permission. You may destroy, kill, and annihilate. They went from you can take all the Jews' stuff to now the Jews, you're allowed to take their stuff. And this total reversal that has happened in the life of Haman. Haman, of course, prepares the gallows and the reverse occurs and he's hung on it. Haman's property given to Esther and Mordecai, Mordecai is put in charge of Esther's house. Whereas the king was, or not the king, whereas Haman, all throughout the story, his bitterness, his jealousy of of Mordecai, he's upset because Mordecai won't bow to him. At the end of the story, Mordecai is in his position. And then the reverse occurred. On a more general note, as we conclude, this is God's providence today. The ultimate manifestation of providence is this reversal. Where the expected thing, something that we expect should happen, is reversed by God's hand. Of course, in the life of the Christian, it's what we celebrate every Sunday in the Lord's Supper. Jesus died. The enemy has won. The plan of God is defeated. And then the reverse occurred when Jesus rose. We think about it in our lives personally. I'm doomed to hell. I'm destined for judgment and wrath and destruction. We looked at it in our class this morning, the end of Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 17. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. And what's the point? You're all going to be found wanting. But then the reverse might occur. Mercy and grace and forgiveness even though I deserve to die, even though I deserve wrath and judgment, I could experience the reverse, just like Haman and Mordecai. And might I suggest that this doesn't just happen in the future, but this is the essence of the Beatitudes, isn't it? Where the Beatitudes list these qualities, these traits that are, the world would think are are qualities of losers. People who are down on the dumps, people who don't have it going on. The meek, the poor in spirit, those who are persecuted, those who are hungry, of course, for righteousness. But this series of traits that the world thinks, well, that's traits for people who are not doing well. And, of course, the whole point of the Beatitudes, then the reverse occurred. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek, because you will have good outcomes, of course, in this life and ultimately the life to come. So as we conclude today, tonight we are coming to the end of Esther we'll finish up next week the story of Esther the, the, uh, the actual decree what happens on the day and the, the conflict, the pitch battle and of course the inauguration of the Feast of Purim but for the Christian Esther is an example of the Christian story that we were doomed to die but because of the actions of one person we are now saved that being Jesus. We of course welcomed, I guess everybody was here since nobody needed communion, so everybody was here to welcome Heather. We welcomed Heather into the family of God this morning. The reverse has occurred. One who was lost that is now found. And of course we offer that invitation tonight for anyone who needs to experience that too. To start experiencing the reversals of God's providence, to experience what it's like When you think things are going so badly, to experience the blessing of God in His family and His salvation.